with them this high view of Scripture. And so our perspective we looked at last week on the Bible is the Bible is all about Jesus and the gospel. Jesus is the hero of Scripture, and the gospel is the story of Scripture. And so it's the beginning point for us. It's always what we come back to in our teaching and preaching, our counseling. Everything is the gospel. What does the gospel say about this? What does the gospel say about this relationship, this action, this attitude? Everything is flavored by that question. And so our beliefs about God in the Bible are gospel-centered, and that leads to the core value we're looking at today, gospel-centered belief. And you may be asking, well, what in the world do we mean by that? Because it seems like gospel-centered theology and gospel-centered belief is the same thing. Well, let's, let's walk through the statement we've, we've crafted. We put this on our website. Let's make some distinctions. Through the person and work of Jesus, we have access to God, yet we often fail to believe what is true about him. This unbelief leads us into sin. Therefore, we must remember often to believe, for example, God is great, so we need not be in control. Glorious, so we need not fear. Good, so we need not search elsewhere. And gracious, so we need not prove ourselves. As we're on mission and reminded of our need to believe the gospel, we discover the necessity for spiritual discipline, like prayer, meditation on scripture, fasting, fellowship with other believers, solitude, etc. Discipline is a means to being equipped for the mission of God, to the glory of God. If the gospel is not the center of our belief, we are sure to become bound in legalism or antinomianism. Neither of these categories are desirable, but without daily repentance and belief in the gospel, our behavior drifts toward one of the two. Only gospel-centered belief frees us to obey God with joy and gratitude for His grace. So while gospel-centered theology is essentially what we believe about God, Father, Son, and Spirit, what we believe about the gospel, where we get that doctrine from the Bible, gospel-centered belief is essentially personal gospel transformation, personal spiritual growth. It's essentially what it's about. So then why don't you just say that? Gospel-centered, personal, gospel transformation. Well, it's just too many words. We wanted everything to have one word. No, not really. Um, there's a reason we chose the word belief, and we'll get to that in a bit. Two things our statement mentions we're guarding against is legalism and antinomianism. And on our website, if you go to that, you can click on those and get full, further explanations. But essentially, legalism is turning our relationship with God into essentially a set, of, a set of external rules and regulations. And if you follow those primarily external rules and regulations, you're not only good with God and right with God, but God loves you more the more you follow those rules. That's legalism. Antinomianism is just a fancy way to say no law. Antinomianism is law. So essentially, legalism is rules and laws matter more than anything else. Antinomianism is they don't matter at all. So you check the box that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You check the box that you're a Christian, and then you pretty much do what you want. It doesn't really matter because you're good. You're in. You're in the family. So behavior rules or are, are any standards of, of life behavior doesn't really matter at all. So let's walk through gospel-centered belief and, and see how... Uh, we're, we're trying to guard against both of those because both of those, those two streams, wrong streams, are prevalent not only in our culture, but really all cultures. All cultures will lean in one or two of those directions um, in the world. So first, let's see, to guard against antinomianism, let's see the expectation of transformation. The expectation of transformation. This may be some of you here today, you've been led to believe that you pray a prayer, you get baptized, you join a church, you're in, you're going to heaven... Basically now, just do what you want. You're free to do what you want. Doesn't matter, because you're in. And so that's, that's what some people are taught, or led to believe, or it's implied, even if it's not explicitly taught, that, that once you get in, you get your get-out-of-hell-free card, you get your ticket punched, just do what you want, 
Uh, you're free to be whoever you want to be. That the gospel is just a religious experience so that when you die, you can go to heaven. It's not really applicable to life now. But, but guys, that's, that's not it. The gospel is the kingdom of God coming to, to live inside of us in the person of Jesus Christ, the spirit of God. The gospel is, is not just making a religious decision, jumping through a hoop in order to go to a place when we die, go to heaven when we die. The gospel is about heaven coming into us as citizens of the kingdom. It transforms the way we live. It's about life in Christ, Christ's life in us. And this transformation shows up in very distinct ways. As children of God, how can the presence of God dwell inside of us and it not change everything? The king of the universe moves into the neighborhood. The king's taking over. And that's what happens when we become a Christian. When we meet Jesus Christ and are coming to a relationship with him. So, so see this transformation in John chapter 15. John chapter 15, we're not digging deep into any of these passages. Usually we like to teach through books of the Bible, but for this series it's topical, so we're, we're just getting the big picture from these passages. John 15 verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me... And my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments, and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Beautiful, beautiful passage. See, see in that passage the, the big picture, this expectation of change. We will bear fruit because we are connected to the life that is Christ. We're abiding in Him. The life doesn't come from us. We don't generate it. All right? You don't walk by a, a bananas or, or apple or, or orange tree and, and you see the fruits working really hard to grow. I gotta grow, gotta go, gotta grow. They grow because they're connected to the source of life, the tree. It's the same with us. If we are connected to Christ, we will grow. We will bear fruit. In fact, he tells us there that there's discipline, there's pruning if we're not bearing fruit. In fact, the only way we bear fruit is if we're connected to Christ. That's the only way it's even possible to bear fruit. Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. You probably have heard if you have a church background at some point in time, you know, come and give your life to Christ. Well, the, the reality is Christ doesn't want your life because our life is broken and messed up and sinful. Christ wants to give you His life. So that his life flows in us and through us 
so that we bear fruit. And when you're connected to Christ, there will be change. You will be transformed. We read in 2 Peter 3.18, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Ephesians 4.11-16 The church has been given apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, the building of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning by craftiness and deceitful schemes rather speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It's not just something we do as individuals, so we're not running a monastery. You kind of go off by yourself and figure it out. It's something God's intended to happen in community, in the life of the body. We do this together. So for the genuine Christian, growth and transformation is to be expected. In fact, it needs to be said in our culture this. Don't assume your salvation. Don't assume your salvation. So you, so you grew up in church, you've made a decision, you walked out, prayed the prayer, you've been baptized, your parents were Christians, they brought you to church, you've been a member of a church. So sometimes our default mode is, of course I'm a Christian. Never assume salvation. You never get away from the wonder, the wonder of the miracle of salvation that God would save you. That God would save me. Knowing the sinfulness of my heart. Knowing the holiness of God. That that I'm not in hell right now. Is a miracle of God's grace. And so for those who, who don't believe gospel transformation is necessary. Who lean toward rules and, and behaviors don't really matter. I've got my ticket punched. I can just do whatever I want. The word to them is don't assume you're in. Don't assume Jesus is in you. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? The question is, is Jesus in you? Is he alive in you? And the assurance from that comes from spiritual growth and transformation. The Bible never tells us to go back to a point in time when you receive a certificate or got a a religious experience as assurance of salvation. It's always, where are you right now? Are you walking in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ now? So what does that gospel transform life look like? Well, if you ask most Christians in our Bible Belt culture, you, you, you're going to come up with you know, the list of behavioral expectations or rules, and sometimes that's mostly external. And if there's been genuine heart change, it's going to show up in external actions and attitudes. That is true, but, but sometimes it's been reduced to, to things like church attendance. Just show up in a building, check the box every week, and, and you're obviously a Christian, right? Or maybe uh, when you grew up, you know, you wore your Sunday best to church. Why well, don't have to wear these clothes, Mom, Dad? Well, because we're going to church, and our neighbors need to see that that's where we're going. Because if they see that's where we're going, that every week we go to this building to learn how to love our neighbors, 
Even though we don't invite them into our house, eventually they'll come knock on the door of our house and say, why do you get dressed up every Sunday and go to that building? And I'd like to know that God that you serve so I too can get dressed up and go to that building with you every single week. And you might have heard things like that. You might have been told things like that. And that's kind of ridiculous. It's not really that bad. But it's, it's external, right? It's external. And when you reduce gospel transformation to simply external things in the name of evangelism, dress-up evangelism, then you're missing the nature of this transformation. So, so turn to 2 Peter 2. Turn to the right, almost to the end of the New Testament. 2 Peter 2. And let's look at the nature of this transformation. Second Peter chapter two, Second Peter chapter one, rather. One of the mistakes we make in our culture is to see people as good people and bad people. So we have this whole system of classification. It's really different, but if you work hard, you pay your bills, you take care of your family, you vote, you stop and help someone on the side of the road who is stranded, you buy a hamburger for the person at the intersection who's asking for food. You don't just give them money because they can go buy drugs or alcohol, but you go buy them a hamburger and bring them that food. Uh, you pay for the meal of the person behind you in line at Chick-fil-A. Uh, and then they receive that gift and they pay it forward and pay for the next person too. Uh, you eat at Chick-fil-A. That in and of itself is one of the primary rules uh, to be a regular follower of Chick-fil-A. Follow the laws, at least the important moral laws of the system. It's okay to play the system to your advantage to some degree. But if you do all of these things, you like everything you need to like on Facebook or Instagram, then you are a good person. God loves good people. Good people then are Christians. Those are obviously Christians. And the bad people, the people who abuse kids and spouses and puppies, people who love cats, people who steal openly, they don't vote, they're offensive on Facebook, they return text messages with phone calls, they don't tip generously, they don't believe in the Second Amendment, they don't follow you back when you follow them on Twitter or Instagram. These people are bad, God hates bad people, obviously those people aren't Christians, right? And we, we all have these lists in our culture. But the Bible has a different view of humanity in which no one is good. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of us do it. All of humanity does this. We all turn to our own way. We all have a bent towards sin and rebellion. We are born as rebels. The Bible, in fact, says that before we are reconciled with Jesus Christ, Romans 5.10, we are the enemies of God. Tim Keller talks about it. We, we don't live up to, to the standards of God of righteousness. We don't even live up to our own standards of righteousness. Tim Keller talks about if we had a little voice recorder around our neck, just going around recording every critical, judgmental comment, condescending comment that we make about other people, Right? Like how they drive, what kind of idiot pulls out in front of me, what kind of idiot parks like that, what kind of idiot still writes checks in the, in the checkout line going really slow, or looking at how people uh, parent their kids, who would parent their kids like that, or who would treat their spouse like that, or, or who would eat that kind of food or go to that restaurant. You, you know the, the things we think and sometimes say to the people who know us the most. And it records this, this standard of righteousness that we, we make. And if we were to take that recording one day and stand before God and God were to hold us accountable to our own standard of righteousness, we wouldn't measure up. We don't even live up to our standard of righteousness all the time consistently, much less the standard of righteousness of a holy God. None of us are good. 
None of us are righteous enough to make it. Only God is good. So what happens in salvation, that this wrong mentality thinks, is that we're just joining the good person club. So we start to do good things. We start to earn merit and award badges for our good behavior. We get them on our vest like a Boy Scout in line to become an Eagle Scout like Russell in the movie Up when he goes to walk Mr. Carl across the street. We, we think that's what Christianity is. We just start adding good behaviors because we're a pretty good person and we get a, a whole bunch of good behaviors that make us look good because we're Christians and that's what we're supposed to do. But that's not genuine gospel transformation. Look at Matthew 7, 21 through 23. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And Jesus will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now guys, prophesying in Jesus' name, casting out demons in Jesus' name, doing mighty works in Jesus' name, we think that's the hall of fame in heaven. And there will be people who are so self-deceived, they will make it till judgment day, and Jesus will look at them and say, I never knew you. You did that in my name. But it wasn't in my name. I never knew who you were. We had no relationship. And so just externally doing things doesn't mean that gospel transformation, following a list of external rules doesn't mean gospel transformation is genuinely happening. So see some of the transformation described in a passage like 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine Power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason... Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Verse 8, for if these qualities, which ones? The ones he just named, beginning in verse 4. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. These qualities that are internal, love, faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love, that, that if they're real, will show up externally, Right? But if they're genuine, if Christ is in you, they show up genuinely and they show up externally genuinely. Another list that is more well known, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit. It tells us, um, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So, so the nature of gospel transformation is not we just begin to modify our behaviors to, to adhere to an external list of rules and regulations like we've joined a club. 
Or you go swimming at a, a pool, you join a membership at a gym, and you have certain rules you have to follow. You join a, a membership at a, a pool, and you have certain rules you have to follow. The nature of gospel transformation is we are created in the image of God. We still bear his image. But, but we are flawed, and we are broken. We're born with a bent towards sin, so much so that the only thing we deserve is hell and judgment and condemnation. But God sent his son, Jesus, truly God, truly man, the God man, to come and live the life that we fail at every day, and he did it perfectly. And then he willingly laid down his life on the cross, absorbing the wrath of God for our sins. So that there's this incredible exchange. He rose from the dead, proving he conquered death, proving he was who he said he was, ascended to the right hand of the Father, interceding for us today. But there's this great exchange that happens in the gospel where not only are we forgiven and cleansed of all of our sins through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, so that when God sees us, he sees us forgiven, not like we, we, we did sin. It's not that we didn't sin, but he sees us as though we didn't sin. But then we get credit for Jesus' righteousness as though we did all the righteous works he did. Is that phenomenal? And that is our standing. And so the image of God that was broken and cursed by sin, the Bible says it begins to be restored and remade and and reconciled after it's been reconciled with God. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, we are now uh, new creatures in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, which means the image of God in us begins to be restored, not perfectly restored where we won't sin, that's coming, but you begin to see it show up in your life as you more and more love what God loves and hate what God hates and pursue holiness and righteousness and say no to sin, repent of sin. Colossians 3.10, we walked with Colossians earlier this year. We put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. 2 Corinthians 3.17-18, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is freedom. Freedom is not doing whatever you want to do. Freedom is the freedom to pursue righteousness and holiness in the image of God that you were created with. To be everything God has created you to be. To become everything God is calling you to become. So this inner first transformation of the heart which leads to a change in attitudes and actions as the heart is changed. Therefore, when by God's grace we begin to notice attitudes and actions that are sinful, that's not in step with the gospel, They're hurting me. They're hurting others. The first place we should go is not to change the behavior, but to examine our heart. Why do I love that sin more than I love Jesus? Why do I pursue that sin more than I pursue Jesus? Now, now external behavior changes are good. So, so, So somebody's struggling with lust, you should go to a place where you begin to cut off access points to images that are feeding that sin of lust. That You should do that, but that alone is not going to change your heart. That alone is not going to transform that, the, the, the wickedness that's pursuing that. that. The problem of lust has been around long before smartphones and Hulu and Netflix and YouTube, right? You've, you've got to get to the heart of why do I find joy and satisfaction in those images 
more than I find in Jesus? Why do I love that more than I love Jesus? And this is where we get to, thirdly, the path of transformation. The path of transformation. How do we change? Once we grasp that we are going to change, change is expected, change is essential. Once we grasp that change is more than just outwardly conforming our behaviors to other people's expectations or rules that have been made. Once we see that change is an inward work of the Spirit, so then what do we do? And that's where us calling this gospel-centered belief comes in because it's our conviction that the first step and a continual step that we take is to believe. That's where we start. There's, there's much more to it than that, but that's, that's where you have to end up. That's where you have to start. That's where you keep coming back to. What you believe. And when we sin, we recognize the reason we sin is because of our failure to believe some aspect of God and His nature or the gospel. There is a truth about God that we are not believing, a truth about the gospel we are not believing, or there is a, a, a lie, a false statement about God or the gospel that we are believing from the enemy. It's one of those two things. Every, every sin, every um, um, evidence of unbelief in our life manifests itself as sin. Every sin goes back to unbelief. Tim Chester says in his book, You Can Change, that all sin and negative emotion lies in unbelief. So anytime sin shows up in our life, we immediately want to trace it back to what are we believing that is a lie? What are we not believing that is true about God and His gospel? So let's walk through some examples of this and see how unbelief leads to sin. Let's, let's take a student struggling to find the motivation to study and work hard in school since most of our church is in school. You're at the uh, point of the semester you've had the first wave of tests, probably. So like if it's a football game, you're probably at the end of the first quarter. Some of you are, what, down two touchdowns already? Maybe a touchdown behind, maybe, maybe just a field goal. You've done okay, but you're still, you're still playing catch-up already. Maybe, maybe you really discipline students, it's a tie game. You're keeping up. Or maybe the super uber students, you're like two touchdowns ahead, it's LSU-Auburn yesterday, you're making it happen. Right? Probably, what, 75% of students are already behind? Just say higher, lower? Higher? <laughs> Maybe more. So let's look at the, the, the lens of the gospel. Let's apply the lens of the gospel to this. First, primarily, uh, what does the gospel say about your identity? Is your identity in Christ primarily a student? In Christ, the answer is no, it's rhetorical. In Christ, you are a son or daughter of your Father in heaven. In Christ, you are a servant of the most high king of the universe. In Christ, not only are you seen as God by God as forgiven, but you're seen by God as righteous and holy and belonging in the presence of God who is holy, holy, holy. You belong there. Not only does he allow you there by his grace, but because of his love, he wants you there. Because you're His. It's not because you've made good grades. It's not because you've done good things to earn your place there. It's simply because of the work of Jesus Christ and you resting in Him and Christ being in you and you being in Christ. It's the only way you get there. But that identity is rooted in Christ 
and your performance in school doesn't change that identity in Christ. So you do really well, you study hard for a test, you knock it out of the park, and you get an A+, plus, A whatever, A-, minus. you settle for that, and it doesn't make you more pleasing or acceptable in God's eyes. And, and then on your, your bad days, when you, you don't go to class, when you mail it in, when you take the F, it doesn't make you less acceptable or pleasing in God's eyes. Because your identity is not rooted in your performance as a student or a person. Your identity is rooted in the performance of Christ, who did it right all the time, who never failed. And so you're standing your identity in Christ, you as a son and daughter of the most high God, you as a dearly loved son, dearly loved daughter, is always secure because of Christ. That's your identity. That's who you are above all else. Now this sets you free from rooting your identity in your performance in school. This crushes the arrogance and the self-righteousness of the good students who tend to think they're better than others because of their academic performance, their intelligence, their accomplishments. So, so like going through seminary, um, I really wanted to get straight A as a seminary. I'm like, this is seminary. This is, uh, my undergraduate degree was in science education, so this, this is like, this is what I'm doing the rest of my life. Who wouldn't get all A's in seminary, right? It's a master's degree. This is knock it out of the park easy. And so the first time I got a B, I was, I was crushed. Like, gosh, I can't believe I failed. So then I thought to myself, well, I, I want to uh, accomplish a certain GPA so that on graduation day from seminary, when they're handing out degrees, I'll get to wear one of those medals that they give you in college when you, when you have a certain GPA, right? And I got to graduation day in seminary, and I had that GPA. Nobody handed out any medals. Where's my medal? I did something. Nobody knows. I need to post it. There's no Twitter back then. Or at least nobody used it much in my age bracket. Nobody was rewarding me for anything. My failure was I was rooting my identity in something small instead of something big, Jesus. So knowing who you are crushes the idols that we set up. It crushes any cause for self-exaltation and arrogance because you do well. But it also crushes the students who don't work hard, who aren't motivated, don't take school seriously because you see your identity in Christ calls you to rise above how most people view education in school. Just to get by, to get out. Because I'm a new creation in Christ, my identity is in Him, but my role and my calling in this season of life is to be a student. It's my job. It's, it's not who I am, but it is what I do. And if you're, you're in college or you're in any school, but we'll focus on college, God's opened a door for you to have the academic and financial ability to get a college degree. Do you know that 20 to 25% of Americans have a four-year college degree? That's it. Just under 40% of Americans have any two-year or four-year degree. It's not for everybody. Those of you who don't have a college degree, don't just hear failure and shame because you don't have a college degree. See your identity rooted in Christ. You have value that goes far beyond any kind of accomplishment or degree. But for those who are in college right now, those in school, it's your job. So because of Christ, he is king. You serve your king in many ways. And one way you serve your king is by being a good steward of everything your king has given you. 
That includes your intellect, your time, your money, your talents, your abilities, your skills. It, it includes your gifts, music, art, language, athleticism, leadership. And so gospel-centered belief says you believe your identity is in Christ. Your role and calling for this season is to be a good steward of your time, energy, and resources. So you work hard at school to get this degree that God calls you to pursue. And you do it well for His glory to be seen in you and through you. So that when you succeed and do well, it doesn't become the basis of arrogance. You don't become prideful. Look how knowledgeable I am. Look at my degrees, how smart I am. I'm no longer teachable. That doesn't become who you are. You remain humble. And then you use a degree to get a job in a field where, again, you continue to work hard for the glory of God in you so that others don't make much of you, but they make much of Him. Matthew 5, 16 tells us that we let our light shine before men so they may see our good works and praise our Father who is in heaven. So your motivation as a student is, is tied to what you believe about your identity and calling as a student is tied to how you see yourself in light of your identity and your calling that God's given you. And it's not only as a servant serving a king and being a good manager and steward of your abilities, but you also see yourself as a missionary. So because your education, which is tied in some ways to your career, is part of God sending you out as his missionary to share his love and the gospel with others in the field that he's called you. So missionaries aren't just pastors, people in full-time vocational ministry or part-time vocational ministry. Missionaries are moms and dads, students, high school, college, junior high. Missionaries are employees, employers. Missionaries are people who work at banks, people who work at CenturyLink. People who work in labs, people who work at the mall, people who have any job, car dealerships, accountants, bookkeepers, are, are called neighbors, friends, family. So if you're breathing, you're a missionary if Christ is in you. God has sent you to someone, a people. So your education is part of that because your education leads to a job, probably in that field, maybe not. But wherever that job is, that's now your mission field. And so you, you go and bring this hope and joy and love of Christ that you've experienced to that mission field. So I'm a student, I have assignments, I'm struggling, I'm already down two touchdowns through, after the first quarter, I'm studying, and I need to do better, but I'm, I'm checking my heart and motivation, okay? So doing well in school doesn't make me righteous, I'm not trying to prove to everybody how smart I am, but I, but I have to be a good steward, I've been given tops, I've been given another scholarship, I've got to keep those scholarships, so being a good steward is, is keeping those things to give glory to my king and how I work hard to do that. Um, and then I study for the right reasons. And as I, as I do that, as I work hard, as I, as, I, as I demonstrate this freedom, this peace, this joy because my, my identity is in Christ, then I have the opportunity to share this security with other students. Because most of the campus isn't experiencing this freedom and this joy that I've discovered in Christ as a student. And so you're, they're, they're, they're stressed. They're freaking out. They're freaking out, trying to figure out what am I going to do? How am I going to get by? Or they're prideful and arrogant about their accomplishments. And in love and grace, God has sent you into their life to share the joy and the freedom that's found in the gospel. Which is part of your mission field. Students. And, and when you fail, you will fail. You're not crushed by failure and shame and guilt because you've messed up. Because again, you have an identity in the gospel that's deeper than that. Students, do you see that? 
Do you believe that? Because if you do, it's going to show up in how you act and your attitudes, how you live every single day, how you approach school. Students centered in the gospel, fully believing these truths, will be the best students, not for the sake of their own glory, not to be self-righteous and proud, but to humbly point other students to Jesus as the one who has set them free to work hard for their king. And when I say best, I don't mean highest. I mean best for the campus. Because they're free from earning approval. They're free from recognition. They're free from being crushed by success and failure. They're free to pursue their calling because they know who they are in Christ. And gospel-centered belief also about who we are also helps us see our weaknesses and helps us to know that the only way we can maintain this perspective through, is through individual transformation and spiritual disciplines. So there's a real, genuine relationship and pursuit of Jesus when no one is looking. So this is not just something I'm doing when I'm around people. I can show up in this building every Sunday or show up at MC time and, and I can play that game and put on a face. It's, it's not something that's just happening in front of other people. On my own, just me and God, there is a love of Jesus, a pursuit of Jesus that is real and vibrant and growing. A ongoing repentance of sin. A transformation that's happening. But I also know that there is a transformation in me that cannot happen outside of community. And I need people who know me deeply, who not only can hear my heart, but can speak the gospel to my heart because sometimes I'm so broken and weak, I can't preach the gospel to myself. And I have to have people I love enough and trust enough to be able to say, I need you to speak the gospel to me in this situation. And they can see where I'm hurting myself and where I'm hurting others and I don't realize it because it's a blind spot and they love me enough to tell me. Which is why we as a crossing will continually call you to DNA, men with men, women with women, pursuing Jesus together in deep gospel transforming relationships. We believe it's vital. And so we have students reminding each other the gospel and their identity in Christ and, and, and then you start to do practical things. Like look, we, if I'm in my dorm room by myself, I'm not studying. I'm playing games. I'm looking at the ceiling. I'm, I'm doing whatever. So let's study together. Let's quiz each other. Let's learn better studying techniques. Let's work hard as students. Um, let's help other students. Um, that's just one example of how gospel-centered belief shapes and drives and transforms actions and attitudes. How you believe shows up in what you do. Some other examples. We've talked a lot as a, as a church about the four G's. Uh, this comes from Chester's book, You Can Change. It's a helpful tool, a lens that you can apply to just about any situation in life. Our, our primary caution is don't let this become a formula. This meaningless formula that you just plug into life and you just kind of go through the, the statement. Well, I'm, I'm doing this, so I don't believe God is good, so I need to repent and believe that God is good. Go about your way. But it is helpful. So God is gracious. I don't have to look elsewhere for acceptance and approval because I, therefore I don't have to prove myself. God is good, so I don't have to look elsewhere for satisfaction and joy. I find all my needs met in Him. God is glorious, so I don't have to look elsewhere for significance. Therefore, I don't have to live in fear of others. And God is great, so I don't have to look elsewhere for salvation and security. Therefore, I don't have to be in control. And there's so much more behind that. Uh, we did a, a sermon last December. You can find it on our website if you want to get more in-depth uh, teaching on that, plus the, the book by Chester. But, but maybe by God's grace, 
you already know the benefits of how fully believing these truths about God have shaped and changed your attitudes and actions. So I'm tempted at times to, to take great pride in my plans and ability to organize. And those plans aren't working. Now I'm tempted to become really frustrated and angry because my omnipotent sovereign plans are not working out. And so I need the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God does this by His grace for His glory. Jared, you're not in control. Your plans and organizational abilities are not the engine behind the universe and are not the engine behind the crossing church. I have all the power because I am great. There's no one like me. And so rest and be at peace and trust that I'm working all things out. Sometimes through your plans, sometimes despite your plans to keep you humble. And in the end, he gets all the glory. And not me or anybody else. That's good for me. I don't like it, but it's good. You can take any truth of Scripture and preach the gospel to yourself, not just the four Gs. For instance, when you're tempted to be afraid or have fear and anxiety, remember, Jesus says, don't be anxious for anything, whether food or clothing or drink. That your Father, your Father in heaven, feeds the birds of the field. They're not gathering or reaping or sowing and putting things in barns. He's taking care of them every day, every season. Aren't you of more value than they don't worry about your clothing because your Father in Heaven clothes the grass of the field. They're more beautiful than Solomon all of His glory. This grass today is, is alive today, dead tomorrow, taken up, burning in the furnace. Your Father takes care of the grass of the field. Isn't He going to take care of you, His son and daughter? Or don't you know how much value you are to Him? Your Father even knows, Jesus said in Matthew 6, that you have all these needs. He knows all your needs. In fact, we don't even have to pursue those needs, he tells us, like the Gentiles do. He tells us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things that we're tempted to worry about, he will provide. He will provide. Because he's a good dad who loves to take care of his kids in powerful ways. See that belief in the gospel, belief and trust in Jesus changes everything about you from the inside out. And when sin shows up, the battle begins with what are you believing or not believing about God and his gospel? This battle is fought individually, but it's fought best as individuals in community, doing life together. Because we need people not only to love us unconditionally, at our worst. We need people to see where God's grace is working and encourage that and cheer that on with us. And then to speak hard truths to our blind spots. Then we more and more become a people who demonstrate God's glory as we are changed by His gospel and find joy in Christ. May may God make us that to help see a city transform as we enjoy him fully. Now we want to respond to this word. So I'm actually going to ask our, our worship team to, to begin to make their way up. How, how you need, need to respond. Uh, we are praying God is revealing that to you this morning. Maybe he's revealed to you that you've never truly come alive in Christ. 
I mean, maybe all you have is religion. And you never, Christ says, the king has never moved into the neighborhood and taken over your life. Because you don't see true gospel transformation. And our call to you is to repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus. That Jesus is our Savior. He alone is the God-man who lived the life that we fell at, who died for our sins in our place, who conquered death, who conquered sin, who conquered Satan. And trusting and believing in Jesus is how we come alive in Him. God making us alive in Christ. And there's a lot to process there. So uh, you can call out to, to Jesus for salvation right here, right now as we're sitting. If you need someone to talk to, you can come grab me, Kendrick, grab somebody here you know. Let's, let's go to the back. Let's go sit on the couches. Let's talk. Let's go eat lunch together today. Let's get together this week and let's walk through how the Spirit of God is speaking to you right now. If you are a Christian, we invite you to respond like we always invite Christians to respond to Jesus and His gospel. Repent of your sins and believe in Jesus. That's, that's what we keep doing. We live that life. It's a continual practice that we have as followers of Jesus. I'm about to read a, a prayer that was written long ago. And you can follow along in your mind and your heart. Um, and then we're going to have some time of quiet where you can listen to the Holy Spirit speaking to you. How he's calling you to respond to repentance and faith. And when you're ready, if you have been baptized as a believer, when you're ready, come and receive the elements, the cup, and the bread. Bread that is representative of the life of Christ, perfectly lived, crushed for us. The cup, which is representative of his blood shed on the cross for our sins. Take the bread, dip it in the cup, and then return to your seats. And we'll share joyously in this ancient meal together, remembering who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So let me read this prayer, and then you spend time listening to God. O God of love, I approach Thee with encouragements derived from Thy character. For I am not left to feel after Thee in the darkness of my nature, nor to worship Thee as the unknown God. I cannot find out Thy perfections, but I know Thou art good, ready to forgive, plenteous in mercy, Thou hast displayed thy wisdom, power, and goodness in all thy works and hast revealed thy will in the scripture of truth. Thou hast caused it to be preserved, translated, published, multiplied so that all men may possess it and find thee in it. Here I see thy greatness and thy grace, thy pity and thy rectitude, thy mercy and thy truth, thy being and men's hearts. Through it thou hast magnified thy name and favored mankind with the gospel. Have mercy on me, for I have ungratefully received thy benefits, little improved my privileges, made light of spiritual things, disregarded thy messages, contended with examples of the good, rebukes of conscience, admonitions of friends, leadings of providence. I deserve that thy kingdom be taken away from me. Lord, I confess my sin with feeling and lamentation, a broken heart, 
contrite spirit, self-abhorrence, self-condemnation, self-despair. Give me relief by Jesus, my hope. Faith in his name of Savior. Forgiveness by his blood. Strength by his presence. Holiness by his spirit. Let me love thee with all my heart. Thank you.